Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 22nd, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. It'll be a few weeks, I know several, at least several of my listeners are anticipating my return to the Protocols of Satan series. I hope to do that in two weeks. Two weeks from today, I hope. No promises. Two weeks from today, Yahweh willing. But I'm going to give it my best shot. Tonight we are going to talk about flat earth verses from the Bible. Imagine that. This program is subtitled, or is titled, I'm sorry, The Flat Earth Bible, with a question mark after the statement. Some of these verses are also used to promote a geocentric view of the universe. So let me first state that flat earth proponents usually always support, also support geocentrism. But geocentrism does not necessarily require a flat earth, so the two concepts are separate. But we do not actually intend to discuss the merits or shortcomings of either of these theories, even though I will get my barbs and jabs in, of course. Here we only plan to discuss many of the Bible verses used to uphold these theories and interpret what we believe these verses are really saying. It is more important to do this as it should help to lay a solid foundation for real scriptural understanding. Quite unfortunately, and I just have to mention this, there is also a hollow earth theory floating around Christian identity circles. It is based on a spurious so-called secret diary that claims to be from Admiral Byrd and records observations he made, he supposedly made, while crossing the South Pole. Of course, the the hollow earthers in Christian identity, and we do have them, embarrassingly enough, they usually fail to mention the German U-boat sailor Carl Unger's claim to have found Rainbow Island in the hollow earth at the South Pole, or the story of the supposed Air Force Colonel Billy Woodward, that he and his sister were born in the hollow earth, and that both of them were hermaphrodites. The hollow earth tales are as kosher as one can get, and when you combine them with the claims of a flat earth, you appropriately end up with a bagel. Being identity Christians, we should have greater care to prove what is true, to reject Jewish fables, and to avoid swallowing bagels. To be candid, I will say that I personally do not believe the earth is flat, and I have a series of photographs which... I myself have taken and posted at the Christagenia Forum, which call into question many of the claims of flat earthers. But that is not our purpose here. Rather, here we are only going to examine certain biblical passages which flat earthers use to claim that the Bible teaches that the earth is flat, along with other related issues. Furthermore, I also doubt that the Earth is at the center of the universe, 
But that is entirely immaterial to our conversation this evening. And neither is it relevant to the flat earth debate. Scripture is certainly the inspired word of Yahweh our God. But it is written from visions given to men. And it is written from the perspective of men. Even proponents of the heliocentric system may say that the sun moves or rises or sets because that is the perspective which we have as mere men standing on the surface of the earth regardless of the perceived shape of the earth and regardless of geocentrism whether it be true or false. So these statements in scripture cannot be used to prove a thesis on astrophysics. Before we continue, I must also note that on Monday, August 21st, 2017, all of North America, this is nearly a month from now, all of North America will be able to witness an eclipse of the sun. Much of the continental United States will be within what is called the path of totality, meaning that those people will see a complete eclipse. Those people will be able to see a total or near total solar eclipse. This path, where the moon will completely cover the sun, will stretch from Lincoln Beach, Oregon, to Charleston, South Carolina. Just outside of this path, a partial solar eclipse may be observed, where the moon covers part of the sun's disk. People in southern Canada and New England will see from 75 to 90% of the eclipse, and people from southern California to Florida will also see 75 to 90% of the eclipse from the opposite side of the path. But for at least many flat earthers, the eclipse cannot happen. So maybe you should remain indoors on that day and you will be able to remain in denial. The eclipse helps to demonstrate that the sun and moon are not fixed to a solid dome at the top of the sky and do not reside at the same fixed altitude, among other things. And if they don't reside at the same fixed altitude, they can't be the same size. So all the flat earthers that follow Eric Dubay, you've been had. You've been totally had. But I knew that two years ago when I first treated this topic in a podcast. But I digress. And we really aren't here this evening to talk about And we really are here this evening not to talk about the Flat Earth, but the Flat Earth Bible. In truth, the Bible does not teach that the Earth is flat, but neither does it teach that the Earth is a sphere. There is little evidence that the scriptures even reflect a cognizance of the structure of the universe from a scientific viewpoint which is outside of the immediate earthly perception of man. And even the inspired word of God is written from within man's perception. The Bible may have an account of creation, but that account is given as a poetic allegory and not a scientific manual. For example, flat earthers maintain that the sun, moon, and stars are fixed within a physical dome which is stretched out over the entire earth. 
They used Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, to help establish this claim, where it says, from the King James Version, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of of the heaven, to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. This is said to have happened on the fourth day of creation. Then they claim that because the heavens were created after the earth, that the objects in the heavens must be relative to the size of the earth, and must exist dependent upon the structure of the earth itself. But there is a problem with their interpretation. Reading this passage by itself, the flat earthers ignore the fact that God had created light and darkness and separated day and night on the first day of creation. And then on a third day of creation we read, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb-yielding seed, and the fruit-yielding fruit, the tree, the fruit-tree-yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb-yielding seed after his kind, and the tree-yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. Now, plants cannot possibly exist and grow and multiply without light, and particularly sunlight. The photosynthesis of sunlight is an absolute necessity to plant life. So the existence of the sun is a prerequisite to the creation of the plants. Therefore, the description of the creation of the sun and moon and stars on the fourth day cannot be literal. Rather, it is a poetic allegory describing the order of creation from the perspective of an earthly man. But it is not a literal scientific account, so it cannot be used to prove or disprove any particular scientific theory. One flat, earth internet, uh, one flat Earth article on the Internet, which we will address at length here, is titled The Flat Earth Bible by Robert Shadowald, which gives only a partial recounting of the opening days of the Genesis creation. Here we will address this and many other aspects of Shadowald's article, as it seems to be a popular source that is fairly representative of the claims for a flat earth Bible. Here is what Shadowald says about the opening verses of the creation account. He says, the Genesis creation story, I think this is the second paragraph of his article, the Genesis creation story provides the first key to the Hebrew cosmology. The order of creation makes no sense from a conventional perspective but is perfectly logical from a flat earth viewpoint. The earth was created on the first day, and it was without form and void. On the second day, a vault, the firmament of the King James Version, was created to divide the waters, some being above and some below the vault. Only on the fourth day were the sun, moon, and stars created, and they were placed in, not above, 
the vault. Now, notice how Shadowald completely ignored the creation of light and darkness and day and night on the first day. Then he also completely ignored the vegetation created on the third day. That vegetation could not have survived without sunlight, but admitting that would interrupt the plan of Shadowald's agenda. So he is a dishonest interpreter right from the beginning of his article. Much ado is also made about Genesis chapter 1 verse 6, where it says, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. So some men even picture an ocean of water beyond the heavens. But as we shall see, the firmament is really only the sky, including the expanse of the heavens, and the waters above the firmament are only the cloud canopy, which the ancients surely perceived as the source of rainwater. If rainwater can fall through the firmament, then the firmament itself is not a solid object. Now, as for the firmament, it says in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 8, that God called the firmament heaven, a verse which Mr. Shadowald practically ignores. God called the firmament heaven. So the firmament is heaven, and heaven is the firmament. And there is no exception to that. And the firmament is not two things, but one. And the heaven is one thing. Even though the form of the Hebrew word is dual, it's always used as a singular, and it's translated either the heaven or the heavens. So in the next section, in his article, Shadowald insists that the firmament is a dome in heaven with a solid physical structure. And this is what he writes about the firmament. He says, the vault of heaven is a crucial concept. It's crucial to him because his whole theory falls apart if he doesn't make it a solid object. He, and I'll, I'll, I'll do the paragraph without interrupting. The vault of heaven is a crucial concept. The word firmament appears in the King James Version of the Old Testament 17 times. And in each case it is translated from the Hebrew word, rakia, which meant the visible vault of the sky. The word rakia comes from rikwa, meaning beaten out. In ancient times, brass objects were either cast in the form required or beaten into shape on an anvil. A good craftsman could beat a lump of brass into a thin bowl. Thus Elihu asks Job, in Job chapter 37 verse 18, Can you beat out, the word being raka, the vault of the skies, as he does, hard as a mirror of cast metal? And that word vault is that word rakia. The use of this word, vault, may cause confusion. And this is me speaking. I'm finished with my citation from Shadowall's article for now. The use of this word vault may cause confusion, as it does not appear in the King James Version of the Bible. But most people would agree that it sounds as if it is in there. That is because in some Bible translations, the word vault appears in place of the word firmament. 
Other translations have the word expanse in place of firmament. So we must know that as they appear in the various translations of Scripture, these words are all synonyms. They are basically synonyms to one another. They are all used to translate the Hebrew word rakia in these 17 passages. And with that we must understand that the vault Shadowald describes is the firmament in the King James Version. And it is not something separate from or in addition to the firmament. Shadowald is correct that in the definition of rakia, the word for firmament or vault, in Strong's Hebrew lexicon, that the word comes from raka, Strong's number 7554, which is defined by Strong as to pound the earth by analogy to expand by hammering, by implication to overlay with thin sheets of metal. Strong's also notes that in the King James Version, the word is variously translated as beat, make broad, spread abroad, and stretch. Among other uses in other contexts, so it is evident that rakia is only derived from raka because of the action implied by the word and not because of the substance which is being spread. It describes the action of spreading something out. For example, another related word that is derived from raka is rakig, number 7550 or which is related to, another word which is related to Raqqa, is Raqqig, number 7550, which is a thin cake or wafer, where we can imagine pancake batter spreading as it hits the pan. And another word related is Rakam, number 7551, or Rikma 7553, which both refer to embroidery. And we may refer to a bedspread or to a blanket as a spread. The ultimate root of all of these words is rock, R-A-Q, number 7535 in your Strong's Concordance, which means thin, emaciated, or flattened. Embroidered works and pancakes are not metallic objects which are beaten out by hand. So we cannot rightly insist that the firmament, or rakia, is a metallic object beaten out by hand. The writer is confusing the true concept of the meaning of the word. As we have already mentioned, Genesis chapter 1 verse 8. In Genesis 1 8, the scripture clearly says that God called the firmament, which is the rakia, or the vault in some translations, God called the firmament heaven. And therefore, the firmament is the expanse of space, or even the expanse of the sky itself. This is readily demonstrable, since we see references to the birds of heaven in scripture. 
speaking of the desolation coming upon Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 4, the prophet wrote, I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. And that word is Shamamim. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of Yahweh, and by his fierce anger. All the birds of the heavens were fled. Are these the birds of a solid metal vault? Two Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, we see a reference to the birds of the air, and the word for air is Shamamim, which is usually translated as heaven in the King James Version, and which is the word appearing as heaven in Genesis chapter 1, verse 8. The same phrase, birds of the air, appears several times in the Greek New Testament, where the word for air is uranos, a word which is usually translated as heaven elsewhere in the King James Version. So, Shadowald airs. He makes a serious mistake where he continues and he says, Elihu's question shows that the Hebrews considered the vault of heaven a solid physical object. Such a large dome would be a tremendous feat of engineering. And Shadowald is trying to prove that the vault of heaven is a separate object from the heaven itself, which is the expanse of the sky. And he has not one verse to prove that. He's only hoping that you don't see the bait and switch. If you don't see the switch, he's going to get off with his bullshit. I see the switch. The word vault is the word rakia. It's translated firmament in the King James Version. And in Genesis chapter 1 verse 8 it says that the vault or the firmament is the heaven. It is the heaven. Shadowald's trying to tell us that there's a vault in the heaven. That's not what the scripture says. He's a liar. But he's hoping that you don't notice his lie. This is absolutely disingenuous since the scripture says in Genesis 1.8 that the firmament or rakia is the heaven or the expanse of the sky. Period. Shadowwald wants it both ways but the Bible does not give it to him both ways. But let us see once more the passage which he cites which is in Job chapter 37 verse 18. Can you beat out, and that is a verb, it's raka that we've already discussed, to beat out something by hand, or to stomp the ground. Can you beat out the vault of the skies, or the firmament, in the King James Version, as he does, meaning as God does, hard as a mirror of cast metal. Hard as a mirror of cast metal. Let's take a note of that. For this, the King James Version reads, Hast thou with him? spread out the sky which is strong and as a molten looking glass not hard as a mirror of cast metal but as a molten looking glass the translation of the Greek by Sir Francis Brenton in his edition of the Septuagint reads 
Wilt thou establish with him foundations for the ancient heavens? They are strong as a molten mirror. And the Greek supports that, molten mirror. The New American Standard Bible has it, Can you with him spread out the skies? Spread out, not beat like metal. Spread out the skies, strong as a molten mirror. In any case, the word for strong may have been rendered as mighty or powerful. Again, we see the concept of something molten, which spreads out when it is poured. But Shadowall chose a translation which lent the most credibility to his beaten metal theory. In any case, since he cannot rightly equate his vault to the heavens, or, I'm sorry, unequate his vault to the heavens, as Yahweh equates them in Genesis, how do birds fly around in, or how does rain pass through a solid object? In truth, Shadowwald's assertions are ludicrous. In truth, in this passage of Job, Job 38.7, I'm sorry, 37.18, the verb raka better fits the context when it is rendered as spread and not beat, as the word bears either sense. Elihu was making a poetic allegory and used a play on words, employing both raka and rakia something which poets often do, and biblical poets are no exception. Rather, they pioneered the technique. Other poetic allegories of the creation, of the same heavens, help to further prove this point. In Psalm 104, speaking of Yahweh, David says, Who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain, here the words for stretch and curtain are from Hebrew words totally unrelated to either Raka or Rakia. Then in Isaiah chapter 40 we read, It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. We will probably discuss this passage, in fact we will discuss this passage later again, in reference to the phrase circle of the earth. However, where it says, stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain. And if you don't understand that, then Isaiah repeated the idea where he said, spread them out as a tent to dwell in. We see a similar statement to which David had used, but the word for curtain is yet from yet another Hebrew word, so it's not exactly the phrase David had used. If, in the book of Job, Elihu is describing a solid metal object, then David and Isaiah are liars. The heavens were not stretched out like curtains. The description of creation by Elihu, as Shadowald interprets it, is contrary to the descriptions by David and Isaiah. This is the foolishness of insisting that a poetic allegory must describe a literal truth. In reality, interpreting raka in its alternate sense to spread and rakia as something which is spread out as 
some translators have interpreted those words in the versions which we cited. Then Elihu, David, and Isaiah are all in perfect agreement. Although they chose to use different poetic allegories to describe an aspect of Yahweh's creation from the perspective of man. Shadowald is a perfect perfect example of why I have so much despite for flat earthers. They interpret everything they can in a manner that's absolutely peculiar to their position, but which actually is contrary to the rest of scripture. So in the very next lines of his paper, Shadowall goes on to somehow prove his point with a list of verses that do not even contain the same language that Elihu had used, where he himself uses a pun, employing the word hammered, and he says, the Hebrews, and supposedly Yahweh himself, this is Shadowall's words, considered it exactly that, and this point, that the vault or firmament of heaven is a metallic dome, is hammered home by five scriptures. I don't think it's hammered home at all, and we will see. So to support his idea that this dome is hammered out, a hammered out piece of metal, he quotes Job chapter 9 verse 8, where it says, Who by himself spread out the heavens, the word being Shamayim, the same word in Genesis 1.8 that the firmament is equated to. The vault is the heavens. The firmament is the heavens. The King James here has, which alone spreadeth out the heavens. And right here, the use of the word Natah, which is spreadeth out in the King James Version. And in the version which Shadowalt cites, of course, they're both from the same Hebrew, also proves that in the words of Elihu, the verb raka should be interpreted in the sense of spreading an object, not beating it. This word natah is also the verb used of the stretching of the heavens as curtains. In those passages we just cited in Psalm 104 and Isaiah chapter 40. Then Shadowald cites Psalm 19.1, which says, The heavens tell out the glory of God. The vault of the heaven reveals his handiwork. And this is not describing two different objects. Not at all. This is a parallelism. Hebrew uses parallelisms very often in the Psalms, in the Prophets, in the New Testament. Parallelisms describe the same object in different ways two consecutive times. If Yahweh says in Genesis 1.8 that the vault is the heavens or the firmament, depending on how you want to translate Rakia, the firmament is the heavens, then Psalm 19 verse 1 is not contradicting God. Not at all. It's a parallelism. Psalm 102, verse 25. The heavens were thy handiwork. I don't know how he claims that supports his position. They were handiwork, but he spread them out like a curtain. (laughs) 
He didn't beat a metal object and stick it as a dome over the earth. That's not what it's describing at all. Otherwise, David and Isaiah are are lying. Isaiah 45.12 I, with my own hand, stretched out the heavens and caused all their hosts to shine. And again, the verb for stretch is natah and not raka. According to Strong's, the word natah is to stretch or spread out. And that is how raka should also be interpreted in the words of Elihu in Job chapter 37. One passage of scripture does not make a thesis on astrophysics. But all these other passages employed by Shadowald prove our point that he is wrong about the words of Elihu. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 13 the last passage he cites in his short list. With my right hand I formed the expanse of the sky. And the King James Version has there. And my right hand has spanned the heavens. It is not the expanse in the sky. It is the expanse of the sky. In other words, the sky itself is the expanse. Just as Genesis chapter 1 verse 8 informs us that God called the firmament heaven using that same word, Shamamim. From these passages, which he claims support his position, I cannot determine how the author insists that the vault of the heavens, called the firmament in the King James Version, must be a solid physical object. That the birds are called the birds of heaven shows that the heaven, which is the firmament, is an empty expanse and not a solid physical dome. Shadowald cannot have it both ways, because the scripture itself informs us that they are one and the same, the firmament and the heavens. None of these passages prove his position, except by his own misunderstanding of the word rakia, as he insists that it be related to metalwork, where it only relates to the concept of something which is spread out as we have demonstrated in its relations to terms for embroidery and cake mixing as well as to the pounding out of metals which spreads them out. And as we have demonstrated here in many passages using different terms like Psalm 104 and Isaiah chapter 40 using different terms but describing the same act of creation. We will critique more of Shadowalt's paper, which is representative of many of the claims of flat earthers. But first we shall discuss the Hebrew word for earth. There are actually four words which are translated as earth in the King James Version of the Old Testament. Those are Eretz, Strong's number 776, which is actually land. And Adama, number 127, which is soil. And Yabesheth, number 3007, which may refer to dry ground. And Hafar, number 6083, which is earth in the context of dust or clay or dirt or mud. We will focus upon Eretz at length here. Hafar is soil or 
mud or dust, it, it has many applications. We will concentrate on Eretz here. Strong's number 776. I would stake my reputation on the fact that Eretz comes from words which also give us the word earth in English, as well as words like arable, area, and other words related to the land. The um, Latin verb, I think, for the idea of plowing was arao, I think. Or maybe that's the Greek verb, I forget. I'm sorry. I'm digressing. This Hebrew word for earth simply refers to the land. And the Hebrew word, which is often translated as world, does not refer to the planet, as we shall soon see. First, we may see that in the King James Version of the Bible, the word earth appears in Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament 794 times in 736 verses, according to BibleWorks software. Then, opening a Strong's Concordance to the word earth, we may see that on most of the occasions where the word appears, it is from this Hebrew word, Eretz, Strong's number 776, which primarily means land. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we see this word appear where earth is distinguished from heaven. But in verse 10, we see that the dry land is called earth, or Eretz, and it is distinguished from the sea, although the sea is clearly a part of the planet. Therefore, it does not necessarily describe the entire planet, but only the portion of it which is not in the sea. So we cannot assume that wherever we see the word Earth, it refers to the planet. Whether the planet be flat or a spear is irrelevant to these facts. The word land appears in the King James Version of the Old Testament nearly 1,700 times in over 1,400 different verses. And except for a few dozen occasions, it is from the same word, Eretz, Strong's number 776. It is completely arbitrary as to whether the King James Version translators or any others rendered it as earth or as land in any particular passage. And in the original Hebrew, earth and land are equivalent in scripture and do not necessarily refer to the entire planet. So here I am going to discuss a passage which is not mentioned by Shadowald, but which I have seen cited by both geocentrists and flat earthers alike. That passage is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, from verse 7. Yahweh maketh poor, and maketh rich. He bringeth low, and lifteth up. He raises up the poor out of the dust, and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill, to set them among the princes, and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and he has set the world upon them. That's the relevant passage here, if you haven't guessed. 
He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. (coughs) Now the simple-minded, read verse 8 here, and insist that the earth, meaning the planet, has literal pillars which hold it in place. But is this what is actually being said here? We read that the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and he has set the world upon them. But it should this really be accepted so literally? First, the pillars are of the earth, and the world is set upon them, but not necessarily the earth. And world and earth are two entirely different things. The word for earth is Eretz, or land, and the word for world is Tebel. Strong's number 8398. According to Strong's Concordance, Tebel means the earth as moist and therefore inhabited. By extension, the globe. By implication, its inhabitants. Specifically, a particular land, as Babylonia. And Strong informs us that in the King James Version, the word is translated as habitable part or as world. Looking beyond Strong's definitions to a more complete and more authoritative source, Jesenius's Hebrew County Lexicon to the Old Testament further explains that, or I should say, perhaps better explains, that Tabel, number 8398, refers to the inhabitable parts of the earth, and only to the entire earth in certain given contexts. Strong's definition suggests this as well, where he says that it means specifically a particular land. So where in 1 Samuel chapter 2 we see the word Eretz and Tebel in the phrase, the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, I should say in the clause, and he has set the world upon them. We must interpret these as a reference first to the whole land and second to the inhabitable parts of the land, meaning the parts which the children of Israel are able to inhabit. This is made evident in the text of verse 9, where it says that he will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, and the adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. This is not a scientific treatise. Rather, this is an assurance of Yahweh keeping his people. That's the context of this clause. Understanding this, we must also understand that Hebrew writers commonly used parallelisms, whereby the same object or entity is described in two different ways consecutively. Where in verse 7 it speaks of the poor being lifted up and set amongst princes. It is speaking of the men whom God would have appointed as leaders among the children of Israel. 
These are also the pillars of the earth upon which the habitable world would rest. The leaders of Israel who Yahweh would choose to ensure the living space of his people. The great men whom Yahweh raises up to defend his people. They're the pillars of the earth. If we interpret this passage literally, the planet may be perceived to resemble a multi-tiered structure, sort of like a wedding cake rather than a bagel. Yet in Job, it says that Yahweh hangs the earth upon nothing, so it evidently does not need a literal foundation or literal pillars. But if we interpret this allegorically, the passage makes perfect sense in the context in which it is found as an assurance to the people of God that their society would have stability and he would see to it that through the appointment of men as pillars of that society. As for the phrase, pillar of society, that term came into our language because at one time, educated men knew exactly what Samuel was talking about. That phrase came from the Bible referring to men because at one time educated men understood that where the Bible said pillars of the earth it was referring to men. That they would uphold the world. Yahweh's world. Wow. I'm sorry, it's incredible to me that people don't understand these things. With all of this in mind, we will return to Shadowald's paper. It must be said that Shadowald correctly distinguishes between flat earthers and geocentrists. However, the passages he cites while making this distinction, found at the beginning of his paper, are cited frequently by flat earthers, because many flat earthers are also geocentrists. So we will discuss those at well. From the second, or maybe this is the third, I forget, paragraph of his paper. Shadowald says, Except among biblical inerrantists, it is generally agreed that the Bible describes an immovable earth. At the 1984 National Bible Science Conference in Cleveland, geocentrist James N. Hansen told me there are hundreds of scriptures that suggest the earth is immovable. I suspect some must be a bit vague, but here are a few obvious texts. Shadowwald's words, of course. And he quotes very small portions of five texts, and I'm going to run down his list, but then we're going to discuss each of them at length. The first is 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 30 where it says, He has fixed the earth firm, immovable. The second is Psalm 93, verse 1. Thou hast fixed the earth immovable and firm. And Psalm 96, 10. He has fixed the earth firm, immovable. And Psalm 104, 5. Thou did fix the earth on its foundation so that it can never be shaken. And then Psalm 45, 18. Who made the earth and fashioned it, and himself fixed it fast. And I'm sorry, that's Isaiah 45.18, if I didn't read that correctly. Now we must challenge whether these passages, which Shadowald has listed, actually can be used to prove geocentricity. 
or whether these passages are actually saying something other than the common literal interpretations perceived when they are removed from their context. Because we noted that Shadowald cited an awfully narrow portion of each of these scriptures. So we shall examine them one at a time. But we will read a more complete pericope of each passage so as to get the complete sense of what is being expressed. And a pericope is actually from the Greek word for a cutout, right? It's a segment or a portion of scripture or of a passage or a page in a book or whatever. It's a cutout. From 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we'll read from verse 29. Give unto Yahweh the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. The world also shall be stable, let it not be moved. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let men say among the nations, Yahweh reigneth. Let the sea roar, and the fullness thereof, let the fields rejoice in all that is therein. Then shall the trees of the wood sing out at the presence of Yahweh, because he comes to judge the earth. And here once again we see the word earth and the word world, Eretz and Tebel, in the phrase, Fear before him all the earth, the world shall also be stable. Then where it says, Let the sea roar, but the fields rejoice, and the trees of the wood sing, neither can any of those phrases be taken literally. Rather, as we generally interpret such allegories from Genesis to Revelation, the sea is the general mass of the people, the people on the planet, all peoples, and here the fields and the trees, evidently referring to the people of Israel and the wider Adamic race, should rejoice at the coming judgment of God. The Adamic race is depicted as a forest of trees, and the children of Adam as a planting of wheat, in many other poetic allegories which are found in the prophets and in the gospel. So just as it was in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the land, or earth, is all of the land where the world is that part inhabited by the children of Israel. So all the earth is beckoned to fear Yahweh, but the world, or the inhabited part occupied by the people of God, shall be stable, because Yahweh shall ensure that his people are safe. This we read just a couple of verses later, where it says in verse 35 of that same chapter, just two verses later, And ye say, Save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us together, and deliver us from the heathen that sea that was roaring, that we may give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise. Now, from Psalm 93, the next verse that Shadowald had cited. From Psalm 93 we read, Yahweh reigneth, he is clothed with majesty. Yahweh is clothed with strength, wherewith he has girded himself. The world is also established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. 
The floods have lifted up, O Yahweh. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. Yahweh on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Yeah, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Yahweh, forever. In the psalm, if the floods are literal waters, the psalmist should have no fear, as Yahweh had promised in Genesis chapter 9, never to destroy man with a flood of water. Never again to destroy man with a flood of water. But if the floods are all of the alien peoples, the psalmist appeals to Yahweh with a prayer of stability for the people of Israel in spite of the other races and says the world is also established that it cannot be moved. It doesn't say the earth, it says the world. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The world, the land inhabited by the children of Israel is established and Yahweh the God of Israel will rule in spite of the floods which are the other peoples on the earth. From Psalm 90, Psalm, I'm sorry, from Psalm 96 we read, O worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness, fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that Yahweh reigneth, the world, not the earth, the world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice, and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar, and the fullness thereof. And once again, the psalm should be interpreted as an appeal of God that the land of Israel would be stable, that the Israelite society would be stable, and it has nothing to do with the physical structure of the entire planet. It is simply a poetic allegory which makes a prayer that the people of God would have peace in their habitation in spite of the roaring sea. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. From Psalm 104. From Psalm 104, again speaking of Yahweh, from verse 3. Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters? Now, that shouldn't be taken literally, right? Who maketh the clouds his chariot? And that shouldn't be taken literally. Who walketh upon the wings of the wind? And I never saw wind with wings, so that shouldn't be taken literally. Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers of flaming fire? Now, I've seen flaming ministers, but they weren't good people. They certainly weren't ministers of God. Who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever? If none of those other phrases should be taken literally, this shouldn't be taken literally. Thou coverest it with the, with the deep as with a garment. 
the waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. That's all referring to the waters. Thou coverest it, covering the earth, with the deep, with the sea, as a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted. They go up by the mountains and they go down by the valleys under the place which thou hast founded for them. Meaning that they go back down into the sea when it rains. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over. That they turn not again to cover the earth. That's the entire psalm I think. Here in Psalm 104 it seems to refer to the planet where it says in verse 5 laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever but that is not so it cannot be so because in verses 6 and 7 it contrasts the earth with the seas and it says speaking of the same earth thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment the waters stood above the mountains meaning the clouds at thy rebuke they fled at the voice of thy thunder they hasted away so it stopped raining there was no flood, right? So what we actually see in the psalm is a comparison of the land covered by the flood of Noah to the waters which covered that land. After the flood of Noah, there was a promise never to flood the land and with water again, which is recorded at Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. The reference to the foundations of the earth must therefore be a reference to the time of Noah where Yahweh said in Genesis 9.13 I do set my bow in a cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth the word for foundation in Psalm 104 is from the Hebrew word Makon Strong's number 43.49 which means a fixture or a basis as well as a place or an abode so the foundations are not great cement or stone blocks upon which the planet exists or rests as the flat earthers and the geocentrists may insist rather the foundations are only the basis in God's word that the land would not again be flooded and all mankind destroyed this is evident where it is speaking of the waters in verses 8 and 9 and it says, Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they not turn again to cover the earth. Has nothing to do with astrophysics, has everything to do with an assurance that God won't flood the earth again, that the earth is founded in that assurance. Wow, that's so easy. Finally, we read in Isaiah chapter 45, the last of the verses that Shadowald cites. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. Now where the King James Version has established, the version which Shadowald cites has, cites, has fixed it fast. And I didn't even check to see what Bible version he's citing. Throughout this paper, he's citing a Bible version that seems to be very convenient to his agenda, but it doesn't work. Again, Shadowall selected the Bible translation best suited to support his peculiar opinions. 
But the word for established in this passage is kun, Strong's number 3559. And it does not imply that something cannot move, or even that something is fixed fast, as with a hammer and nails. Strong says that the word properly means to be erect, to stand perpendicular, hence to set up in a great variety of applications, whether literal, establish, fix, prepare, or apply, or figurative, appoint, render sure, proper, or prosperous. He then gives a wide array of translations for the word, which were employed in the King James Version in various different contexts. The context of Isaiah 45.18 is salvation for Israel and the establishment of creation for the certainty of the promises made to them. The context is not astronomy and the nature of the universe. So it is in all of the other versions which Shadowald mentioned, all of the other verses which Shadowald mentions here. The flat earthers, and in these cases even the geocentrists, are completely deceptive in their interpretations of each of these passages. We cannot address every aspect of Shadowald's paper in one podcast, and we may not even bother to read much of it, much of what remains. As we believe that we have already destroyed his major premises. Yes, we have. However, here is what he says under the heading, The Shape of the Earth. He says, disregarding the dome, which doesn't exist, the firmament or the vault is the heavens, not the dome, the essential flatness of the earth's surface is required by verses like Daniel chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. In Daniel, the king, meaning the Nebuchadnezzar, saw a great a tree of great height at the center of the earth, reaching with its top to the sky and visible to the earth's farthest bounds. If the earth were flat, a sufficiently tall tree would be visible to the earth's farthest bounds. But this is impossible on a spherical earth. Likewise, in describing the temptation of Jesus by Satan, Matthew chapter 4 verse 8 says, Once again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, cosmos, in their glory. Obviously, this would be possible only if the earth were flat. The same is true of Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye shall see him. Now, here once again, Shadowald takes it for granted that by earth and world, the entire planet is being referenced. However, the word cosmos in Greek, as we have established in many other places, is only in reference to the order of the oikumene, or the inhabited earth, as parts of the earth inhabited by men of the Greco-Roman society. This is evident where Luke wrote in chapter 2 of his Gospel, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Yet the Roman writers clearly knew of many parts of the world that Caesar had no power to tax, such as India and Parthia and the lands of the Scythians. So they were 
not really a part of the world which Luke referenced. And we could add sub-Saharan Africa to the list as well, and many other lands that the Romans certainly knew about. Likewise, in Daniel chapter 4, in the interpretation of that same vision which Shadowall tries to use to prove the planet is flat, Daniel speaks of the tree and what it represents, and he says, It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, meaning he's equating the king to the great tree, for thy greatness is grown and reaches unto heaven, and thy dominion unto the end of the earth. This is how Daniel interpreted the part of the vision which says in the King James Version that the tree grew and was strong and the height thereof reached unto the heaven and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. Now it is well known from both scripture and history that the rule of the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar never extended very much beyond Mesopotamia and the Middle and Near East. King Nebuchadnezzar never ruled over China, or the Americas, or most of Africa, or Europe. So the beasts from those places never had shadow under the branches of his allegorical tree, meaning that they never took part in the benefits of Nebuchadnezzar's government. Therefore, the word earth in Daniel cannot possibly be a reference to the entire planet, and the vision of the tall tree does not prove that the planet is flat. This is another ludicrous argument presented by Shadowald, and he has not yet presented a single sound proof that the earth is flat, or that the firmament is a solid metallic dome over the sky. In Isaiah chapter 40, we see a reference to the phrase circle of the earth. The word for circle is chug, Strong's number 2329, and is generally defined as a circle, circuit, or compass. In this instance, compass, we must interpret compass in the archaic sense, which is to go around something in a circular course. Similarly, we see a phrase in Job 1613, his archers compass me round about, and many other such phrases in the King James Version of Scripture. There are other words which mean circle and circle or compass, but none of them are relevant to this passage in Isaiah. The word chug only appears four times in Scripture. In Job 22.14, it's the circuit of heaven. In Job 26.10, he compassed the waters with bounds. In Proverbs 8.27, he set a compass upon the face of the death, and in this passage in Isaiah, in reference to the circle of the earth. So we see that this verse in Isaiah cannot honestly be used to prove that the earth is a sphere, since it only means to go around, or to be in the general shape of a circle. Observing the way the constellations are drawn out in the night sky, even they form a circle or circuit around the horizon, the circuit of heaven of the Proverbs. Now, another word exists, and that word is door, Strong's number 754, 1754, which can also mean a circle, a circuit, or a revolution, but which is translated as ball, 
in the context of Isaiah 22:18, where it clearly refers to a ball. But door is not chug. And in Isaiah, where it says that, where it refers to the circle of the earth, the word is chug. However, even if door were the word used in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, it would not be proof enough to assert that the Bible proves that the earth is a sphere. So, as we said in the beginning of this presentation, the Bible cannot be used to prove the earth is flat, and it cannot be used to prove that the earth is a sphere. That's just the way it is. Referring back to Daniel chapter 4, where we saw the phrase, end of all the earth, we are led to discuss another common phrase in scripture, the ends of the earth. Many flat earthers read this phrase and insist that the planet has a definite edge, and therefore that it must be flat. If that were the case, then perhaps where it says that the patriarch, Joseph, would push the people together to the ends of the earth. By now, someone would be able to publish a picture of the edge of the flat planet for us, since all of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh must be there by now. And if that statement sounds stupid, that's because it is stupid, but that is how the flat earthers interpret the Bible. But if Ephraim and Manasseh occupy the extremities of the West and became a great nation and a company of nations in the isles and coasts of the sea. As they were promised throughout scripture, then we see that the phrase ends of the earth is only an allegory for distant lands. And it is. As Paul attested in Romans chapter 10, verse 18, the word of God had already gone out into all the world and to the ends of the world, by his own time. Meaning, simply, that the gospel had reached Europe and other parts of Eurasia where the children of Israel had long been scattered. Later, in the prophetic books, the ends of the earth is only an allegory for wherever the children of Israel had been scattered. So we read in Isaiah chapter 43 of the scattered children of Israel. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So the sons are only afar off and the daughters are standing around the ice rim. And maybe none of them have a cell phone to snap us a picture and post a selfie of the ice wall. So the phrase ends of the earth is also allegorical, referring to distant lands and nations and cannot be used to prove that the earth is flat unless you have a flat head. Last year I ran into a clown, a Jewish clown pretending to be a Christian and pushing the flat earth as his principal doctrine. His name is Ernest Pierce. But he goes by several aliases, just like the typical Chicago rabbi. When he insisted that the phrase circle of the earth in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22 proved that the planet was a flat disk, I asked him about the phrase four corners of the earth in Revelation chapter 7 and how that could be made to agree with his interpretation of Isaiah. He immediately posted a meme. I wish I saved a picture of it. He immediately posted a meme depicting a disc-shaped earth 
sitting in a square box of ice, so that the presumed ice surrounding the flat earth had four corners. I asked him if he really thought the earth was created at Toys R Us, because that what he proposed certainly looked like a board game for children. Unfortunately, this is the level of thought I see in many of the flat earthers I encounter. I do not mean to mock or insult or disparage them all, but as a group, identity Christians can certainly do better. But this level of childish thought also evidently appears on a part of those who believe the earth is a spear, or at least some of those who believe the earth is a spear. Shadowald exhibits this relation to Revelation chapter 7 verse 1. He exhibits this in relation, I'm sorry, to Revelation 7.1, and he says, Another less than conclusive argument that the Bible is a flat earth book is its references to the earth's corners. For example, after this, he's quoting Revelation, after this I saw four angels stationed at the four corners, the word is gonia, of the earth, holding back the four winds. And he says, spherical apologists are quick to point out that the Greek gonia can refer to regions rather than points. Most translations of the Bible opt for points. The King James Version says, on the four corners of the earth, implying that the writer viewed the habitable earth as a four-cornered area. And that's the end of my citation. And neither could Shadowald answer this himself. And struggling, he only says, later in that same paragraph, that the modern flat earth model doesn't have literal corners. I guess he didn't see Ernst Pierce's version. The corners could, however, be those regions at the ends of the earth referred to by Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says in chapter 51, he brings up the mist from the ends of the earth, he opens rifts for the rain, and brings the wind out of his storehouses. I guess because... The Revelation also mentions four winds. But the Greeks actually had about 16 named winds. They named their winds depending on what direction they came from or what they, um, what, what nature they had or, or what time of the year they came, that they came. They had names for all their wins. They had like at least 16 of them. I could never remember any of them. It, it's just nuts, right? I guess it has to be part of your culture. They had a seafaring culture, so they had names for their wins, the sailors. Why could Shadowald and his spherical earthers, why could they not see that the reference to four corners is only a poetic allegory representing the fact that the angels would stand on every side of the area affected by the prophecy. It can certainly be demonstrated, and we have done that in part here, that the Bible rarely treats the entire planet, but only that portion of the planet inhabited by the Adamic race, or by the children of Israel, or by only a portion of the children of Israel, depending upon the context of the greater passage. The context of Revelation chapter 7 is in the descriptions prophesying the fall of the Roman Empire which preceded and the captivity of the children of Israel in relation to it. Romans 7 therefore has nothing to do with most of the planet and the four corners do not prove anything about the shape of the earth as a planet. At another point, Shadowald says in his paper, 
Speaking of foundations, Gerardus Bow, in an undated paper entitled The Form of the Earth, cites a barrage of scriptures about the foundations of the earth or world as evidence for spiricity. All, or nearly all of these verses have traditionally been used by flat earthers to prove the earth flat. If one views the earth as an architectural structure with floor, curtain walls, and a roof, it is natural to assume it has foundations, and, I might add, and this is his remark, of course, a cornerstone. Why a spear would have foundations escapes me. Bo's argument that these scriptures refer to the earth's core seems strained at best. Also strained is Bo's interpretation of the ends of the earth, as the points most distant from Jerusalem, and his identification of the Chukchi Peninsula of the Soviet Union, Alaska, Cape Horn, and the southeastern tip of Australia as the four corners of the earth. In truth, both sides of Shadowald's illustrations are childish. His own side and that of Gerardus Bow, or the people he claims interpret the Greek word gonia as a region rather than as a corner. However, now we shall see that Shadowald has a very poor understanding of biblical idioms, metaphors, and allegories in general, and not only those which he thinks somehow prove the shape of the earth. Later in his paper, under the subtitle, The Stars, Shadowald discusses some of the instances where stars are mentioned in scripture. He also refers to one Enoch, which we are not going to address here. The only Enoch literature which I accept as canonical are those Enoch scriptures found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Ethiopic Enoch has suffered many interpolations and chapter editions, actually editions of entire small books, and cannot be entirely trusted. So Shadowwald says, like the Bible, one Enoch typically depicts stars as living anthropomorphic beings. The sons of the gods are also dealt with in one Enoch, and they are associated with stars. This is consistent with Job 38.7, which says that when the earth's cornerstone was laid, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted aloud. As mentioned earlier, this is still shadow-walled, as mentioned earlier, Matthew 24.29 and Revelation 6.13 deal with stars that fall to earth. The image comes from Enoch, but Matthew and John omit some details. In 1 Enoch 88.1, a star that fell from the sky is seized, bound hand and foot, and thrown into an abyss. A few verses later, other stars, whose sexual organs were like the organs of horses, are likewise bound hand and foot and cast into the pits of the earth, citing 1 Enoch 88.3 and parts of the book of Enoch, where I be- which I would believe are spurious. Now, Shadowall describes stars in one Enoch, which are punished for tardy rising, getting up late, and transgressing the commandments of the Lord by getting up late, for not following the designated astronomical schedule. And we will not comment on that specifically, but what comments we do make apply to Shadowwald's assessment of canonical scripture as well as to one Enoch. 
Rather than understand that certain people are described in scripture as stars, Shanawald makes the inane comment that the Bible typically depicts stars as living anthropomorphic beings. That is so dumb. This alone should demonstrate that his understanding when reading the scripture is entirely backwards from what it should be. For instance, where in Judges chapter 5 the prophetess Deborah says, They fought from heaven, the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. She's not referring to astronomical stars. She is referring to the children of Israel who participated in the battles against the Canaanites. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, where Christ says, After the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not be shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. He is referring to worldly governments ordained by Yahweh God, the sun, the administrative establishments of man, the moon, a reflection of the sun, and the people of God on earth, which are the stars. So it is also in Revelation chapters 8 and 12, where similar allegories are used to describe the plight of the children of Israel. Stars are not people, as Shadowald insists, but certain people are being described in poetic allegories as stars. This has nothing to do with the flat earth, but it has everything to do with the faulty backwards method by which one prominent writer on the topic of the flat earth Bible interprets scripture. But in truth, there is no flat earth Bible, because none of the verses which supposedly prove the earth is flat, or even that the universe is geocentric, actually prove any such thing. None of them. For my part, my understanding that the earth is a sphere does not rely on scripture. Neither does it rely on NASA or any government agency or on Freemasons, the Illuminati, the Jews, television, or any other of the childish accusations leveled at me by flat earthers. Rather, my understanding relies solely on my own inferences derived from observations of the natural world. It is my own observations of the natural world which have led me to the conclusion that the ancient Greeks, such as Eratosthenes and Strabo of Cappadocia and others were correct that the planet is a sphere. But as I said before, I did not make this presentation to argue the merits and shortcomings of flat earth. I am really only here to discuss the Bible passages which are abused and taken out of context by people who think that the Bible proves the earth is flat. And this evening, I think I have accomplished that, at least to a great extent. Even if the earth were flat, or round, or inside out, or in the shape of a cube, that is not proven by scripture. You cannot use scripture to prove the earth is flat. So stop misrepresenting the word of God with your childish and out-of-context interpretations. And that's exactly what they are. Thank you for listening. Yahweh willing, I will be here next Friday with 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
and I am trying to, I believe I will, uh, he's already agreed, we just have to schedule it, I am trying to get together an interview for next Saturday with Dr. Michael Hill of the League of the South. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.